Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who help make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Cherio Tomatoes. Cherio has been growing the highest quality tomatoes and vegetables in Italy since 1856. They select only the plumpest, ripest, and juiciest tomatoes. They're picked and packed in the same day, giving you the ultimate depth of flavor and great taste. So in episode one with Wolfgang Puck, I spoke about how beautiful and delicious Cheerios whole peeled plum tomatoes were when I first used them. Well, I've since sampled their canned cherry tomatoes, which you don't really see that often, but gosh, are they delicious. So the team here at Beyond the Plate produces another podcast called Cook Tracks, which is an audio recipe cook along. It's pretty cool. You literally hit play and cook along with some of the most incredible chefs from around the world. So in season two, episode three of Cook Tracks, we cooked along with Chef Sarah Gruenberg from Monteverde Restaurant in Chicago. She made an Orchietti pasta with Italian sausage and peppers and uses canned cherry tomatoes in this dish. So I went back to the recipe bank and made this dish again for like the fourth time because I like it that much. So do yourself a favor and check out that podcast episode and check out these cherry tomatoes from Cherio. Additionally, something pretty cool about Cherio, they employ advanced agronomists to monitor crops on a daily basis during harvesting. What's an agronomist? Good question. An agronomist is an expert in the science of soil management and crop production. Needless to say, you're getting some pretty great quality tomatoes. To learn more about Cherio Tomatoes and all of their products, go to Cherio1856.us. That's C-I-R-I-O 1856.us. Cherio, we thank you. This episode is also made possible with the help of our friends at Falk Salt. All right, everyone, you know when you go to a great restaurant and they sprinkle that flaky salt on steak or on delicious tomatoes, or we all have that friend who's a great cook and has that box of flaky salt sitting in their kitchen to really take a dish to the next level? Well, enter Falk Salt. Falk Salt has been Sweden's premium salt manufacturer for over 190 years. They produce beautiful, 100% natural Mediterranean sea salt flakes. Seriously, you almost don't want to eat this stuff. It's so beautiful. But let me speak from some personal experience here. I've tried all of their flavors and most recently sprinkled some of their smoked sea salt flakes on my eggs. Talk about upping your brunch game. Try this the next time you make a frittata or a quiche for a group. Sprinkle those smoked salt flakes on there. I also just went to a barbecue at my brother-in-law's house and brought a watermelon feta tomato salad. What did I top it with to Gilda Lily? Falk Salt's Natural Flakes, of course. Sorry, I'm not stopping. Here's a third use. Since tomato season is here or right around the corner for some of us, depending on where you live, simply slice or dice a delicious, ripe, juicy tomato, drizzle some really good quality extra virgin olive oil over it, and sprinkle with these flaky, salty goodness. So good. If you can't find Falk Salt in your local grocery store, it is available on Amazon. To learn more about Falk Salt and all of their different flavors, go to FalkSaltUSA.com. That's F-A-L-K-S-A-L-T-U-S-A.com. And follow them on social media at FalkSaltUSA. Falk Salt, we thank you. 
Hey everyone, one more thing before we get going. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. All right, enjoy this week's episode. Why don't we start? Let's test your audio. Can you name 10 essential spices for me? While I test your audio. Sure. Um, Allspice, cinnamon, coriander, nutmeg, cardamom, mace, cloves, rose petals, pistachios, sesame seeds. The list can keep going on and on. Love it. You're good. You're good. You ready to rock? Yes. Let's do it. All right. Today's guest is a Palestinian writer and cookbook author who grew up in Jerusalem. She made her way to the U.S. at age 17 to study at University of Pennsylvania only to continue her education and receive her MBA from Wharton, and then get a master's degree from London School of Economics. She left a career in consulting at McKinsey, has since had two daughters, and has made it her goal to tie her past into their future. Hit that 15-second rewind if you need to hear that again, but I'll do it for you, to tie her past to their future. She's the author of The Palestinian Table and the brand new book, The Arabesque Table. While I wish I could say we were sitting around her family table, hopefully one day, But right now, please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with the woman who Chef Mike Salomonoff calls an incredible writer, a brilliant storyteller, an amazing cook, and a marathoner of Korean TV shows. But really, a best friend, Reem Kassis. (laughs) Thank you, Kathy. It's great to be here. Awesome. It's awesome to have you. Your family table just sounds like it's a dream for anyone who loves food. Can you set the scene of a family, like one of your family tables for us? Sure. So it does sound like a dream for people who love food. Unfortunately, it's not a dream for my kids who find something to criticize about everything that I cook. (laughs) But (laughs) joking aside, you know, when I think of my family table, I think most often actually of my maternal table and my grandparents' tables. And those are the ones that really I try to revive in the work that I do. And the scene that's always in my mind when I'm writing, when I'm cooking is Fridays at my grandmother's house when all the women are in the kitchen and you hear pots banging and women chatting and stews bubbling and garlic frying and being splashed into stews. And it's those smells and those flavors and those sounds that I really try to recreate in my books. My family table today is slightly different, and I write about this in my new book where I say, you know, we're just as likely to have sushi and schnitzel as we are to have the traditional Palestinian meals. So it's a little bit more eclectic, a little bit more diverse, and has a lot more complaints around it than my childhood one did. (laughs) (laughs) How old are your girls now? Uh, Five and seven. Amazing. So I set this conversation up with your bio and your story is really incredible. I kind of wanted to keep like digging further and further, but I wanted to save some things. But I'm curious, where did you draw your strength from to get to where you are? Because your journey is very different than most. Mm. It's funny, no one's ever asked me that, but there's always this idea that you're strong. But sometimes I think it's realizing that you're weak and embracing that, that helps you get to where you want to go. I wouldn't, I've dealt with a lot in my life. And I think part of the reason that I got here is I wanted to leave, you know, the place I grew up in. It's a very politically charged environment. And while my childhood was kind of a bubble in the sense that I didn't experience a lot of the trauma that people experience there firsthand or to its fullest extent, 
I still got to witness it on a regular basis. And I think that A, it forces you to mature quicker, but it also made me realize this isn't the childhood I would ever want for my kids. And I think having that in front of your mind, that you want to give your kids something that is more stable, safer, more peaceful than what you had, I think that was a driving factor in leaving. But I definitely didn't intend to leave and become a food writer. That's for sure. Yeah. Did you role models in your life? Who do you, Did you have role models growing up in your life? I did. I mean, but it, it, I looked at my parents as role models, but it's funny because growing up, I always said I wanted to study business because my father had his own business and I thought that's what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to run the show and be a CEO. And I looked at my mother like, oh, she's a stay-at-home mom. It's, it is what it is. And now in hindsight, I look back and I think it's actually, it's my mother who has shaped the values and morals that I have and the way that I cherish the experience that I have with my daughters and being around them in the kitchen. But also I look even further back than that and I look at my grandmothers and a lot of the stories that I heard about them both growing up, I just took them as any, you know, for granted or just so mundane, anyone can have these stories. And I realize now just how difficult those experiences that I thought were usual back then were. And if you say that I'm strong, it's because I draw probably that strength from the women who came before me. What was little Marine Cassis like? Oh God, she was a radio. She did not stop talking. So <laughs> really? I was called CNN. I was called the Mossad because I did not stop asking questions. Uh -huh. <laughs> So I was given a lot of nicknames, but I was, I was very talkative. I, you know, was, I was a confident little girl, even though I think that covered for some insecurities that I held inside. It was more of a projection. Insecurities as a little girl? I think across the board, you know, it's you're trying to find your place in the world. My father was a Christian. My mother is a Muslim. We're Palestinians, but we're Israeli citizens. And so there was never a community where I felt 100% like I completely fit into. Mm. So wherever I was, I always felt like maybe I'm the odd one out here. And, you know, your chattiness and your bubbliness and sometimes all of that is just a way to cover for feeling like, do I really even fit in here? And that probably also drove the decision to want to leave at some point. I have so many questions about that. That's so interesting. This is I imagine to feel that's, like therapy. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that. The first time I talked to Rachel Ray on here, she we hit the record button off, and she's like, "Jesus, Cappy, that felt like therapy <laughs> to me." Um, you're still inquisitive. You, do you still like to ask questions and things like that as you're in your adult years? Unfortunately, yeah, it's probably the reason I ended up where I did. I overanalyze things and I think too much. You know, I'd be sitting at my desk at McKinsey at 2 a.m. and thinking, what is the purpose of what I'm doing? Whose life am I benefiting? And of course, you continue to ask yourself these questions and you drive yourself insane. But Do you still ask yourself those questions? Oh, yeah, all the time. People think I have it figured out. I'm like, nope, I do not. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. 100 different directions we could go from here. I'm going to stick with Little Reem Cassis, though. What smells take you back to your childhood? Zatar, more than anything. It's what was on our breakfast table every single day. I even remember before coming to UPenn, uh, my mother had come into my room when I was packing my bags and she was carrying jars and bags of Zatar and Sumac and Freak and all kinds of things that she, you know, thought I would need as a freshman. And I stared at her, are you crazy? You know, it's America, I'm not going to starve. But she insisted and I took all those items with me. 
And it wasn't until I opened that jar of za'atar a few weeks in that I really felt this sense of nostalgia just bubbling up to the surface and I realized how much I missed home. And it felt like I was back in her kitchen again, but it was such a stark realization that I wasn't and it would be a while before I could be again. So. Yeah. Did you cook when you were a little girl? Mm-mm. No, I was shooed out of the kitchen. Um, really? <laughs> Well, it was a couple of things. Kids are annoying, so get out of the kitchen. You're in our hair. Stop bothering us. But then there was also, as I grew older, this idea that you should be studying. You're destined for more than just standing at the stove for the rest of your life. So I would wait for my mother to, you know, leave the room or go upstairs or go outside, do something that would take a while, and I would sneak in and try to do something. Or I'd wait for her and my father to you know, go visit some friends, and then I would go and try to make a cake. So I tried. I always enjoyed it, but it wasn't something I did on a regular basis. When did they real did they realize that you had interest in the kitchen and start to let you embrace it or or cook with them? No. No. No, never. I mean, even when I got to a point and I mentioned once to my mother that I was considering this idea of a cookbook and this was long before I even wrote a proposal for it. It was just this random thing in the back of my mind. And her response, which she denies now, or at least wasn't what she meant. She goes, who goes to war and to write cookbooks? And I was like, okay, that's going on the shelf for a while. <laughs> yeah. uh, what was the first thing you ever cooked? I mean, this is going to sound so weird, but I think it was like an, a cream sauce to go with steak with black pepper or green peppercorns in it. Don't ask why. It's just, I remember that experience very vividly. And this was this back home or once back you came home, to Back home, yeah, it was back home. I was like, I don't know. 12, maybe. Wow. Did you work back home? No. I wanted to, I mean, you know, you watch TV and you see kids go to work when they're in school and I want to have a job, but it's a very different environment to the one here. Did you work when you were in school here or did you wait till you were uh, done with school? No, I did. I worked a little bit. I Well, I TA'd um, when I was in graduate school and undergrad, I did these on and off small jobs within the university department. So... I don't even remember the exact positions, to be honest, but, you know, administrative work, if you will. It was part of the scholarship slash financial package I was on. By the way, so rude of me. You asked before we started where I was located. Where are you, by the way? Are you in Philly? Right outside. No? outside Philly. Okay. Got it. I thought so. <laughs> um, okay. So at age 17, you, you left for school in the U.S., promising yourself you'd never return to the kitchen. Right. But before that, someone said to your father, why bother paying for such an expensive education? Don't you know, like all Arab women, she's going to end up in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. How did that make you feel? I mean, initially I was shocked and then I laughed because I thought it was a joke. But the guy was serious. He's like, my daughter has a PhD in chemistry. She's cooking right now in the kitchen. And... I think at that young age, I was very, I mean, on part naive and part idealistic, and you think it's an either or proposition. And I, I had never been privy to all these discussions about having it all and do you work or do you stay at home and do you have, you know, how is it with your partner, so on and so forth. I just felt absolutely no way. I will never end up in the kitchen. I don't even need to get married. I want to work in the business world. I want to rise to the top and this is it. I'm going to prove that I don't need to be any of those other things. And it was a very long time before I realized that you can choose different paths and they don't, you know, like the kitchen where I'm in right now, technically, it can be a powerful place. It doesn't have to be a life sentence. It doesn't have to be framed 
the way that person framed it back then. Hmm. I love that. You went to UPenn, Wharton, London School of Economics. Why did you keep going back to school? And what was your biggest takeaway from all of those degrees? I like ticking boxes. Um, <laughs> so schools tick boxes, but no. And even to this day, you can probably tell from the books that I write, I'm very much a student and I love learning. So I spent over a year just researching this latest cookbook. And there's something familiar about it. And I love the intellectual challenge of you're trying to understand something new, to figure something out, to learn something that you didn't know. And school offers that. And I think I, I also like teaching. And that was what I did when I TA'd. And I think on some level, I thought maybe one day I'll go back and get a PhD and I'll teach. And But then I realized, you know, getting a PhD is seven years of doing statistics and <laughs> Teaching is a much smaller part of that. And by then I'd had my daughter and I'd started on this, the first cookbook. And I don't know, things took on a life of their own. You worked at McKinsey, as you mentioned, you just mentioned challenges. How did you handle challenges and obstacles when you were there? So I think for me, it was finding the right support network. And a big part of that was my family. I spoke to my mother every single day that I was there. And swimming, I swam every single day. So physical activity has always been something that just helps me get out of my head and for a second, like not focus on all the issues that I'm dealing with. You know, you set a time aside and you deal with them when you have to. Uh, but the challenges were interesting that I faced there. I mean, they weren't, I, it wasn't a bad place and it wasn't a job that's objectively not a good job. I just don't think it was the right fit for someone like me. And I mean, we can get into detail on this, but it's probably going to bore people. So maybe let's not. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. So what made you decide to leave after all that work? How long were you there? A year, not long. So look, it was, it was a process. It wasn't something that happened overnight where I woke up and said, this is it. I'm quitting. It was from day one. You start to see signs of, I remember I'd walk into the office and I'd see McKinsey and company were in on the wall. And I would think, oh my God, this is it. I've made it. Like this is where everyone wanted to end up after business school. And then a few months in, I would walk in and think, oh my God, this is it. And like I said, I'd be up till two in the morning thinking like, what am I doing? Whose life am I saving? Who am I impacting? Why do I need to be here? Et cetera, et cetera. But I think the straw that broke the camel's back was we were in a meeting once and the senior partner there got a call from her nanny about one of her daughters being very sick. And she said, you know, something along the lines of just make her soup and get on with it. And I asked her at, towards the end, just in small talk, like, hey, you know, do you get to spend time with your kids every day? And she looked at me and goes, I don't even see my kids every day. And I thought to myself, well, this is a woman who's at the top of her profession here, but do I aspire to be her in 10 years down the line? And the answer was no. And that's when I realized this isn't the right place. So even though the traditional thing would have been to stick it out for another year, transition to maybe more of an industry job, I just realized this wasn't even the profession I wanted to be in. And that's when I went back to school again. Do you ever regret it? Or no? It's not, I don't regret the decision that I made, but I miss the kind of life that I had when I worked. I miss the ease with which you could just, you know, what do you do? I'm a consultant. I work for McKinsey. I miss the certainty of, you know, the financial stability that you knew you had and would have down the line. It was a much more stable lifestyle, but you paid the price for it differently. What three words would you use to describe yourself? Now you make me feel like I'm back at a McKinsey interview. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my God. I'd say curious, stubborn, and fiery. I'm just, or passionate, whatever. Whichever curious, one you prefer. Stubborn, fiery, passionate. For those of you, well, all of you, because this is a podcast, but I could see Reem right now. And when I asked her that question, she put her head down in her hands and said, oh gosh, that was funny. So, well, probably not funny for you. So (laughs) shortly after you had your first daughter, your husband asked you, correct me here, your husband asked you if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? Can you tell us about that conversation? Yeah, I still remember it. He was actually sitting in bed and I was standing in the doorway and I was complaining about one thing or another, which is a habit of mine. And he goes, I mean, if you could just do anything, what would you do? And I said, I would write. I would write and I would talk to people. That's what I love to do. And maybe I would cook too. I like cooking. You know, cooking was not at the forefront at the time. And he's very matter of fact. He's so, he's the complete opposite of the three words I just gave you. So, (laughs) and he goes, well, why don't you just do that? And I, you know, I laughed. I said, what do you mean? Why don't you just do that? There's, I have no experience, no background, no contacts. I've already worked so hard on something else. Why would I give it up and do this thing? And I think it just, I don't know why that conversation is so vivid in my mind. And time passed since then. It wasn't something that happened overnight, but I think it planted the seed of maybe this is an option. And then I started, you know, the whole process of working on a proposal, but even before that, just going to bookstores and flipping through cookbooks that I liked and figuring out who the agent was and taking lists and notes. And again, a student, a nerd, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So now you're a mother of two daughters. What do you hope they learn from your story? I mean, I hope they learn they don't have to fit into a specific mold, that they don't have to take boxes that society tells them are the right boxes to tick. But at the same time, I want them to be practical and realize as much as it's nice to say, follow your passion and be idealistic, life is not an easy ride. And if you want to do those things, you need to make sure you have set yourself up with a certain safety net that can carry those ambitions or those passions. I was eating at Zahav a while ago with Rachel Ray and Michael came to our table, like hugging this book. And we were like, Oh, awesome. Not we. I was like, oh, awesome. (laughs) He's bringing us his book like to the table. But then he like showed us his book, The Palestinian Table. And I was like, that's not his book. Why is he hugging it? (laughs) And he went into how much he said, do you know Reem? Have you seen this book? And we're like, no, tell us about it. Oh my God. Um, He's like my PR agent. (laughs) (laughs) We all need a Michael in our lives. No. Well, also Anthony Bourdain. He said, the late Anthony Bourdain said, with the Palestinian table, Reem Cassis gracefully demonstrates the power of food to transcend the political divisions that are too often all we know of a place like Palestine. What makes Palestinian food so special? I think it's not just the food itself. I think it's this notion of home that's tied to it. So there is a large portion of the Palestinian population that's in the diaspora. And I think our food is what connects us all regardless of where we are. And it's this idea that binds people across time and place with these memories of a place that we all attach a certain significance or meaning to. Because if you think about it from a purely uh, practical perspective, our food is very similar to Lebanese, to Syrian. The entire food of the Levant is similar, you know, it's a geographic area that stretches back to the start of civilization and our cuisine. If you go back 
to pre-Ottoman times was all very similar in that region. So I think it's more of the emotional part that's tied to it that makes it extra special, if you will. And of course it's delicious, but you'll have to try it out for yourself soon. <laughs> I know. Wait, tell me more about the Palestinian olive oil. So, I'm so curious. It's funny, but my father's from the Galilee, which is in the northern part of the country. And across the Levant, that region is recognized as having the best olive oil. And I remember as a kid, there would be a lot of these things on TV where chefs would blind taste olive oil. And regularly, it was the olives from my dad's village that would mm. win the best flavor. Uh, so I've been researching it recently just to try to understand. So there's a couple of things. Apparently those olive trees date back to Roman times, but then also a big part of it is the way that they are harvested and pressed. And this is unique to the Galilee. Like if you go to the West Bank, they pick their olives when they're green and they press them when they're green. So the olive oil tastes very different from the ones that are pressed in the North when they're black and fully ripe. So much sweeter, less peppery. I'd love to try that one day. When you make it to Philly. I know. Uh, I used to go so often too, but obviously no, this... No, I know. Thank you, COVID. Yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> Palestinian Table, your first book. And then recently, congratulations, The Arabesque Table. A famous culinary historian gave you a review and said, this book is yummy. Do you know who this person is? No. Your daughter. Oh my God, yes, on Instagram. <laughs> I do remember now, yes. <laughs> what does a review like this mean to you? It's funny because the book came in and I thought, okay, I have to do, you know, the requisite. Oh my God, I'm opening the right. book. It's great. <laughs> and I just show it to her and I see her face light up. So I'm like, I need to get this on video. And she, I mean, I thought she would just open it up and be like, oh, it's cool. And she starts flipping through the page and she's like, this is yummy. This is this. And she'd been there for the photo shoot. So she'd seen all this food. I don't know where she pulled that scene from of this is mom look at this and to me it just it was very funny it was very endearing but I love seeing how proud they are of this book I mean my first grader came home the other day and she was like we had to write in school about someone that we love or admire and I wrote about you and I said it's because you write cookbooks yeah. now, that's a strange reason to think you know your mother is cool but thank you anyway so it's it's nice it's nice to see that your kids like it especially since most of the time I hear yeah I don't want to eat this right so what are they into these days, food-wise? So my oldest has the strangest palate ever. She's into sushi, sardines, bacon, smoked salmon, chips, very bizarre, salty things. Uh, my younger one takes more after my palate. She's into stuffed grape leaves and rice and chicken and the usual stuff. Zatar, olives, all those traditional things. Nice. I have two and a half year old twins at home, so. Oh, wow. So your hands more. are full. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're mm. full. They're awesome. No, they're fun. It's such a nice age. It's probably my favorite, that two to four age. It's great. We hear that all the time. We love it. And everyone's like, oh, I can imagine what you're going through right now. I'm like, honestly, it's easy for us because they don't know what COVID is and right. they don't know what's going on in the world. Um, and they don't have to be in front of a Zoom. So That's true. Zoom is a nightmare. The book writing process. I think it's um, very unique to each person <laughs> because some people, I don't know that, I don't know that I know anyone that writes a book and they're like, all right, let's do the next. Most people are usually like, I'm I, done. It's a hard, it's a hard process. Did you ever want to throw in the towel during the book writing process or did you, well, you were, or did you fully enjoy the process? Would I sound really dorky if I said I enjoyed it? I feel, I, kn I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> 
Because like the research and all you, I mean. I like that. I mean, yeah. the part I least like was transcribing the recipes. Because oh, the way gosh. I cook Give it. Give us an I, example of, of how you did that with, with family because it's amazing. So for the first one, it was reverse engineering. So we tried having my mother measure. It didn't work out. She insisted the recipes just don't work and they're terrible and that she has to do it by sight. So fine. So I would weigh, let's say, a bag of sugar. She would pour in her hand, throw it in the bowl, and then I would weigh the bag again and thus figure out how much... It, uh, you know, how much she had used. So I did that for quite a bit of things that she did. But if I'm testing recipes, I generally have a notebook with me in the kitchen. And, you know, I'm putting, measuring everything by grams, by teaspoons, whatever, and jotting it down very quickly. And then in the evening, I would sit down and translate, like write it, type it out and organize it and actually put sentences as opposed to whatever gibberish was in my notebook. That part, I'm not a big fan of. It feels like busy work. But the actual research, writing the head notes, the intros, that stuff I enjoy. How did you learn how to write a recipe? I read a lot of recipes. I mean, I didn't need to reinvent the wheel, right? There's a lot of people who've come before me who have done spectacular jobs writing recipes. So I also looked up, like, how do you write a good recipe? And there's things like, you know, list your ingredients in order. Um, don't use too many filler words, but don't think people are robots. So be conversational, et cetera, et cetera. So. I learned from others. Yeah. Did you have to do much reverse engineering for the second book? It was a scarier book to write. Well, the first one were recipes that I knew that I'd grown up with. It was just, and I knew they were good, right? I just had to make sure I measured them accurately and conveyed them in a good way. This one, I was, I felt like I was on this mission, so to speak, and a much bigger one than the first one. And I constantly doubted, like, will I be able to get the point across? Will people understand that this is not just another Middle Eastern cookbook? And on top of that, are these recipes going to work? I mean, I'm, a lot of them are what I thought was good or interesting or I enjoyed. And who knows if my palate appeals to everyone else or not. So it was scary writing it. And until, you know, you get feedback from not just editors, but also the people who are using your book, you don't really know if... So now I'm starting to calm down a bit. That's interesting though, because, you know, we talk with a lot of chef, chefs who have been in kitchens or work in restaurants and this is an ongoing conversation. There's chefs who cook for their guests and there's chefs who cook for their palate. And I, I, it almost, it's almost like when a chef reaches a certain, I don't even want to say pinnacle, in their career because there's young, young chefs that do this, but to some point you have to cook for your customer, if you will, right. but also you don't want to change what you know and what you like, because that's how you believe a dish should be. Mm -hmm. So that must've been challenging, like you're saying in a way, like what you know. Right. It's, it's what you know, but then also who is your audience, right? Like, am I cooking for a Western audience or am I cooking for an Arab one? Without compromising the mm -hmm. dish. Right. I mean, I know there are some, you know, my, my in-laws have seen the book and they're very nice, very supportive, but they've looked at some recipes and gone, this isn't how this is made. And I try to explain, this isn't a traditional version of it, right? This is like a quick weeknight take on it, or this is using flavors from a different culture or so on and so forth. But it's someone who's in their 80s and has been eating a dish a certain way is not going to find this new rendition I've come up with as exciting versus someone who is sick of the typical stuff they've been seeing in 
Middle Eastern cookbooks are like, oh, this is a nice way to think of something new. So you're never going to be able to please everyone. But I try to put a bit of everything in there because I know that it's not a very uniform audience who could potentially enjoy the book. So should we jump to my culinary appropriation question now or should we do my other question before? Whatever you want, I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, 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 uh, let's take a I'm breath. I'm not hyperventilating, as you can tell. I mean, I don't know if you heard the Terry Gross interview. Thank God I sounded normal, but I would answer a question and be like, oh my God, okay, now I need a breath. Now I need a glass of water. So funny. We've talked about the two books, but you've done quite a bit of other writing besides the books, publications, websites, etc. So in 2020, you wrote recipes for a smaller holiday meal with big flavor in the Wall Street Journal. What recipe did you make the most in the last year? We make a lot of, and I've, I call them tacos. They're not really tacos. They're shawarma served in tortilla bread. <laughs> but it's something that the girls will eat. So I will make shawarma the traditional way. And I will make tahina sauce and I'll make a chopped salad. And I'll tell the girls we're having tacos. And then they'll gobble it up and it's good. But I so I've made this. that a lot just because it's easy. Anything that you roll in bread, it's hard to say no to for kids. And then I have been stuffing a lot of grape leaves and uh, zucchini, which is time consuming. But given that we're home a lot of the time, it's easier to do. What kind of shawarma are you making? Mostly I make beef, but I make chicken every once in a while. Can you roll me through quickly how mm -hmm. you make it? It's so easy. I mean, you get ribeye or sirloin or any kind of meat that you really want, put it in the freezer for a couple hours to firm up complete. Well, you don't want it frozen rock solid, but you want it very firm because then you can take a very sharp knife and slice it paper thin. You marinate it, ideally overnight, but even a few hours is better than nothing. And the marinade is a combination of olive oil, lemon, vinegar, and then spices. And the spices that I like to use, the predominant flavors in them are cumin and uh, turmeric and some fenugreek and paprika and sumac and black pepper and so on and so forth. So you just do that and then you fry it in a pan and you're good to go. It's very quick because there's paper thin. Ooh, that shawarma sounds good. Los Angeles Times, you wrote, why we cook when the world doesn't make sense. What is it about food that makes sense? I think it's just comfort, right? You know, food is, if you're sad, you eat. If you're happy, you eat. And generally you eat with company as well. And that helps you find a sense of connection. And I, I wrote that article, it's so funny. I just, it was right at the start of COVID and I come out of the shower and I was just thinking of all these crazy things. And I wrote it in the span of less than 30 minutes. And I thought throughout my whole life, no matter what was happening, we're always eating. When you have missiles flying overhead and your neighbors are like, okay, let's open tins of fava beans and let's do this. And food just, I mean, even in the midst of the most difficult times of your life, you still have to eat. And in the happiest times of your life, you still have to eat. And it's like the one constant, even as everything around you is shifting. And so I wrote that piece almost as a way to try to get those thoughts. And I probably sounded a lot more coherent in the article than I do now, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's the lowest common denominator we all share and constant. And I don't know if that made any mathematical sense, but yes. More than it would have made if I explained it. <laughs> <laughs> Serious seats. I got to hear about this. The cog and uh, the Kaak, case, yeah. in the case for the ancient Arabic origins of the bagel. Explain. Mm -hmm. So this came about as a result of writing the Arabesque table, because one of the things I did was sift through medieval Arabic cookbooks 
and I come across this chapter for baked goods, and one section is on ka'ek, this ring-shaped cookie or dough, depending on how you've baked it. And it says, ka'ek is so well known, we don't need to describe it, it's a 13th century cookbook. But here are a few variations on it that are worth mentioning. And they go to say, this particular recipe is, uh, you take ring-shaped pieces of dough, put them on a dowel, dunk them in boiling water, and then bake them. And I'm thinking, oh my God, wait, this is the bagel, no? <laughs> and, so, and so then I start reading up a little bit more on the bagel and I read this uh, book that had just come out a few years ago uh, by Maria Bolinsky. I think it's called The Bagel. And she traces its origins to 16th century Poland. And I think, well, wait, this book is a 13th century Arabic cookbook and it says kak has been around so long and it's so common we don't even need to describe it. So I start trying to figure out how it made its way from medieval Islamic Empire to 16th century Poland. And it's a fascinating story. And that was the gist of the article and how. Wow. With that said, you know, I argue at the end, does the fact that its origins hark back to this recipe from the Islamic Empire detract from its position as a very symbolic food for the Jewish population? Absolutely not. Hmm. And I think it's like that with all foods. You know, it can be relevant to your national identity without it detracting from that if you recognize the journey it took to get to that point. Do you read reviews of your cookbooks? Yeah. I mean, if I see them, yes. My publisher sends me stuff, so generally I do. I don't listen to podcasts, though. I hate the way I sound. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? Everyone's like, you have a podcast voice. I'm like, I do not want to hear my voice. And yeah, I don't, I don't think any means. of us like our voices. Yeah. But your voice does sound good, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and last one I grabbed from the Washington Post in 2020, here's why Palestinians object to the term Israeli food. It erases us from history. What do you want people to know about Palestinian food in history? So I guess to place this article in context, there's, as a Palestinian food writer, you're always going to deal with, you're seen as a spokesperson for the cuisine, right? So even my friendship with Mike Solomonov met a lot of resistance and criticisms. And I think what I wanted to convey is I don't think Palestinians have an issue with Israelis eating our food, cooking it, even adopting it into their cuisine. The issue arises when there is this willful denial of where that contribution has come from. And the history it runs very deep, right? And you can go back to the late 1800s, the early 1900s, when the first wave of Jewish immigrants were coming into the country and they lived peacefully side by side. And not to get into too many details, but they ate the same food that we ate. They dressed the same. They listened to the same music. And it wasn't until the late 1940s when you see this initiative of building a very separate entity that is purely Jewish um, and it's separate uh, socially, economically, politically, that you get this cognitive dissonance of, but I love the Arab and I want to be like them. On the other hand, I need to be separate and have my own state. And one of the easiest ways to do that was to just completely ignore the contribution to the cuisine. And cuisine is something often used to galvanize a national identity. So that sounds, it's a very simplistic overview of what's happening. With all that said, the issue plays out abroad. It doesn't play out locally. So for example, what many people might recognize as Israeli salad here in the US, if you go to Israel, it's served up in restaurants as salat aravi, which means Arabic salad. 
So in Israel, it's known where the origins of the salad have come from, but abroad it's marketed as something else. And I think that's where the crux of the issue is. For Palestinians who are trying to get you know, their plight recognized internationally and for the occupation to end and the oppression to end and so on and so forth, they see Israelis abroad taking the food, marketing it, benefiting from it, and at the same time projecting this image of Israel that is different to the reality they experience on the ground, it becomes not an issue about the food. It's not about hummus or the chickpea. It's about the underlying political issues pinning that argument. How were the conversations with you and Mike about this? Interesting, because I'll give you a few examples. I think that might help you understand what they were like. I think we were talking about something at one point and I said to him, you know, when Haifa fell to the Jewish forces and my grandparents had to flee and he looks at me and he goes, oh, I never thought of it that way. I learned it as, you know, we were immigrants and we came in and we just went into the city and people didn't want us there, but we still managed to take it over or whatnot. And you realize you have a completely different perspective on what happened in history. But we've also had other conversations where he said, you know, I don't even know how to explain to my kids that you don't have the same rights that they would back in Israel or that we have to cross a checkpoint to come see you and why that's not fair. Or, you know, I remember one Independence Day, he goes, I don't know how I can celebrate this Independence Day when I know that for your people, it's a tragedy. It's not something you celebrate. And this is where I always say that these personal friendships or these conversations that you can build with people that you assume hate you or are different from you or stand for different things. They allow you to see a personal side of someone. And that's where you can start to see material change. Because as long as you don't get to know people personally, it's so much easier to remain on quote unquote, the other side and to fear the person who's different from you. But once you get to know someone on a personal level, you realize this is someone just like me and their history is different from mine and here's what they've experienced and here's maybe what I can do to make a difference going forward. But yeah, our conversations are, they're not comfortable when it's about those things. But they probably opened his eyes up to... I think so. I mean, if you you can ask him that question, but yeah. <laughs> but we also talk a lot of gossip and, you know, food world stuff. So it's not yeah. all politics <laughs> all the time. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for sharing all that. So you talk and write about culinary appropriation. We've kind of hit on it, but I'm I, I'm just you so interested. Yeah, I'm 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 interested because obviously it's a hot button issue these days. I want to dive deeper so I can learn more from you. I have so many thoughts on it, and some I share and some I don't because my for thoughts are reasons. probably also not. I mean. Shall I share? Yeah, if you're open to it. I, uh, look, here's what I think. Having finished writing this book, I see just how much cuisine is inherently cross-cultural. There is, if, there is no such thing as authentic food. If by authentic you mean something that is void of external influence, those things don't exist. Uh, most ingredients that we attribute to one cuisine have their origins in another. You think tomatoes, do you think Julius Caesar was eating spaghetti and meatballs? He certainly was not. There was no tomatoes in Italy back then. And same with chilies in Thailand and India. You know, pad thai was a dish that was developed in the 1930s by the prime minister to help galvanize nationalism. But I think when you realize this, 
you start to see that appropriation is not about being able to cook someone else's food or to experiment with other people's ingredients. It's about offering the respect to where those dishes come from. And so I'll, as an example, you know, there are people who will say, if you're not nationality X, if you're not Thai, you should not be opening up a Thai restaurant. Like I would argue if you're someone who has lived in Thailand for 20, 30 years and who understands the cuisine and is able to bring it and translate it in a way that will bridge the gap between let's say people in the US and people in Thailand, there is no problem in doing that. The issue becomes, you know, who's benefiting from it and who's not. And people need to put things in context. You cannot take things out of context and start arguing about it. And these issues are not black and white. It's not, I'm from this culture, so I can write about it. You're not, so you can't. If we do that, we miss out on a big part of what art has to offer. And I think food is art the same way that fiction and literature and music are. And if we start to silo ourselves and say, you can only write about this cuisine, you can only write about this you know, particular genre of literature, you can only do this kind of music, we're going to end up in a world that misses out on a lot of the beauty that comes from cross-cultural interaction. But, and I guess that's the primary premise of the book, is you have to give credit where credit is due. You have to offer respect, and it's, the onus is on you to know the history and the backstory. Do the research. I don't know if that made any sense to you, but... It was amazing. I love it. I'm going to tell everybody to listen to, like, that part of this episode, <laughs> if they listen to anything. I mean, there's like, so much I hope much he's not going to fall asleep when I'm done You kidding me? Talking. I love this so much. Because I, like, I, you know, my day job, I work with Rachel Ray, so, you know, I have to, I could post what I want to post, but I'm mindful. Yeah. Like, we all have to be these days. Yeah. And I also, you know, have a wife who just walked by me, but represents or represented many big name chefs and restaurateurs and whatnot. So I'm careful on that side too. And I work with Rachel Ray's books and TV shows. And I know, look for over 20, she built over 20 years. She's been introducing people to ingredients, you know, in cuisine. Some of them weren't on a grocery store shelf. And she is extremely smart and you know, does her research and gives credit where credit is due. And it's just interesting dealing with different dynamics of media world and beyond of a media property will come to me and say, XYZ chef, you smoked chicken in their wonton soup. I think we should call out that they use smoked chicken because it's not traditionally used. I'm like, well, if they explained, you know, if, if they're doing a TV segment and they explain why they use smoked chicken and where, how they came to that, I think we're okay. Like, I think it's okay, you know? And a lot of people, I don't know, there's just so much of this going on. And again, I feel like I'm not being crystal clear about it. I understand 100% what you're saying. I just think there, in most cases where this stuff happens, it's generally not about the food itself. There's always something underlying Absolutely. it. Absolutely, that's it. If a chef wants to open a Peruvian-inspired restaurant and travels Peru for three or four weeks to learn about ají amarillo and, you know, the corn and ceviche, and I'm just giving basic stuff, and then comes back and, like, puts some Peruvian-inspired dishes on their menu, I think I'm okay with that. I mean, they're not saying, like, this is traditional... Peruvian food, this is my take on it. Right. You know, it just as if uh, I'm in Chicago and there's 500 hot dog stands here in Chicago and 
that doesn't mean like someone from another country or background or whatever can't open a hot dog stand. Like I would love that, you know? I, I agree with you. I mean, if someone goes to Peru and learns about ceviche and this and this and that and comes back and puts some of those influences on their menu or, you know, even in my book, I ate at a good friend of mine who owns Kalaya now, which you might know, you know, and I put a recipe in there that is inspired by one of her recipes. I obviously think that's fine. What I don't think is fine is if I go to Thailand for two months and come back and write a Thai cookbook. So, you know, there's a difference between taking inspiration and acknowledging it. There's another between purporting to be an expert on a subject matter because you spent one or two months there versus someone who has spent years researching it. Because when it comes to culture, there are so many nuances that you cannot pick up in a short span of time, which is why cuisine itself is something that exists over centuries. It's not something that exists over decades. So time matters in the equation, I guess. Yeah. All right, everyone, we'll stop boring you. Let's talk about social impact and giving back and, and whatnot to all of our guests on Beyond the Plate. They give back in different ways. It's honestly one of the main reasons we did this podcast. Honestly, some of the work Solomonov does was a little bit of a kick in the ass for me to get this going because I've talked about it forever and mm-hmm. just hearing story like some of the good, whether it's Broad Street Ministry or some of the places mm-hmm. that he was involved with, I'm like, all right, I got to do this because some of these chefs and restaurateurs or, you know, food personalities are way more beyond what you know of them, you know? So my get, to be really honest, I'm not fully familiar with everything you may be involved in, but I'm certain that you're active with some projects or organizations when it comes to giving back, whether here in Philly, Israel, wherever. Can you share some of those ways that you've given back or Mm. raised awareness about a a project or a cause? So like, I think we each look at what our areas of strength are or what we have to offer. And then you try to give back, whether that's for some people, it's time for some people, it's money for, in my case, I think one of the things that I now have that I did not have before is a voice and a platform. And one of the things that I really try to do is for a lot of Palestinians, the biggest issue has always been being heard. It's, it's almost like you're screaming at a wall and you get no response back. So I always try in whatever work that I do, in any articles that I write, in any interviews that I give, to, I don't know if a shout out is the right word, but to cover and to talk about a lot of the Palestinians in the community who are also doing good work to raise awareness, whether that be about the food, the culture, the history, the cuisine, et cetera. If I'm writing an article for a certain newspaper, you know, I will interview people who previously would not have had a chance to talk about their history or their culture or whatnot. Other than that, I, I tend to be very selective in what I support for lack of a better word. It's just, I'm very wary of where the support goes. So I prefer to do it personally versus through organizations if it's back home. You know, here, for example, there's a museum of Palestinian people. So I will do events, I will donate books. I will do those kinds of small scale things. When it comes to larger organizations, there's, and I don't know if all Palestinians feel this way, but when you grow up back there, you see just how much of the aid that is meant to go to Palestinians doesn't go or reach them. It ends up in the pockets of the people running the organizations. And so whenever I'm there on the ground, I try to help out, you know, whether it's through people that I know and it's direct donations, whether it's, you know, again, time, effort, 
money, etc. But I try to do it on a personal level rather than on a formal public one. And I know, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing things publicly and officially and whatnot, but I find it reaches people more when it's done personally. It might take a bit more effort. It might be more small scale and it might not get you the recognition that the bigger stuff does. But I derive, you know, I'm doing it for the people who need it. I'm not doing it for the recognition, if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, for example, there are schools back home where every year I help their students write their application essays. There are students who come here every year. I host people at home for, you know, dinners, staying with us, et cetera, who need. So but that's the kind of stuff I prefer to do versus just saying, hey, I'm. But to each, you know, everyone can do it within their capabilities, right? So I don't know. Your husband's Palestinian, but he grew up here, right? Mm -hmm. He was born in Philly. And South Philly. <laughs> so how do you talk to your daughters? Do you talk to your daughters about giving back or what you do in that sense? I feel like you don't view what you do. At, I think you know it's important, but you don't view it as important or giving back. But it is so important because you're making a difference in these young girls' lives and beyond, I'm sure. Oh, whose lives? My daughter's lives? No, the girl you fill out, you help them fill out the oh, college applications. Yeah. Those girls. I, I went all over the place, but I am curious if or how you talk to your daughters about this type of work. So they're young, so it's difficult to give them exact details. Like, hey, I'm writing an essay for someone so they can get into college. They're probably like, what's an essay? And, right. you know, but we talk about if you're lucky enough to have something, then that means you also have the responsibility to watch out for those who have less than you. So at least twice a year, sometimes four times a year, you know, we go through their toys and their clothes and they know they have to pick out things that they want to give away. And it's not just things that are small on them or toys that they've outgrown, but things that they like. And I say, you know, there's no, my excuse is there's no space in the house also. So you have to <laughs> start making choices. And until you do, you're not getting anything else. And, you know, there are people, so actually it, I'm surprised kids, I think have a tendency to want to give. I don't think kids are inherently selfish or greedy because the minute, you know, I say we need to get rid of these toys. No, I don't want to. I say, well, there's, you know, this girl who lives, for example, we used to have, uh, we lived in a building before and said, well, our doorman downstairs has a girl on his street who doesn't have toys. And the next thing I know, the girls have piled like 10 toys in a mm. bag and brought them out. So I think the sense of giving, I used to see it growing up, my mother, my grandmothers and you know, back home, even people who have nothing will still feed other people, will still give to other people, will still be generous. I don't know if it's part of, well, it's a tenet of Islam to be generous and then to tithe and give the poor and the unfortunate. So, and it's definitely part of the culture to be giving. But I think, you know, they always say the hand that gives the, like a little smell remains on the hand that gives the rose. So you also feel good when you give back, yeah. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I may try that toy thing with our kids soon. My wife would be like, yeah, free up space in our house. Oh, well, my husband calls me the Grinch because sometimes I go in the middle of the night and like take a bunch of their toys. And <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. I, I think, you know, as I, um, I've said this before on previous seasons to, to people and I talk about this with Rachel all the time. It's like, give what you can span so far and wide. It's, it's, you know, your voice as you do, it's potentially money, 
as you do and it's time as you do some people you know you happen to do three of these things but for someone that may not have a dollar you know there's time you know there's a voice so i always encourage everyone to give how they can and probably sometimes you hear you know you assume to give means to give something big sometimes it doesn't have to be like you were saying it can be very small and it can still make a difference yeah all right let's do a speed round what's that (laughs) I'm going to rattle off five questions and you give me a quick answer. What did you have for dinner last night? Stuffed chicken. Mm. What was it stuffed with? Rice and meat. Uh, Name a smell in the kitchen that you love. Zatar. Name a smell in the kitchen that you hate. Cabbage. Tell us your favorite piece of chocolate in your secret chocolate stash. Oh, so my secret chocolate stash is in a white container. I hope my husband doesn't listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's in the pantry. It's like behind the girls' snacks in a white container with a wooden top. And it's a Ritter Sport German chocolate right now. It changes, but that's what I have in there now. He doesn't know you have the secret chocolate sash? He, well, I keep moving it around because he keeps finding it. That's funny. <laughs> I used to have random drawers that I knew my wife didn't go into that I would put like little bites of candy because I am I I could have like a bite. I don't need Exactly. I can have a bite. He finishes the whole thing. And still show up in like a random drawer and like pick up menus before, well, you know, when we used to have a ton of like a menu drawer and she's like, what, what, what's this? I'm like, <laughs> uh, nothing. Last one. Tell me one thing the pandemic has taught you. It's taught me a lot of things, but I think it's taught me how important it is to have a community because we missed that. I mean, this year felt very lonely and we're finally starting to get back to seeing the people we used to see because we're all vaccinated, but I was much happier before COVID. And I think a lot of that had to do with this community, this support network that you have. And sometimes we think, oh, you know, I need to work. I'm so busy. I can't make time to have people over for dinner or to do this. Those are the things, you know, you work because you have to, but those experiences are what make life worth living if you will. So I think even when COVID comes back, I will never say, oh, I'm not going to have people over because I have to finish this work. All right. In closing, mm-hmm. somewhere in some country, there's a little Reem Cassis. One day is going to have your sense of passion to want to preserve. Maybe it's their um, country's cuisine. Maybe it's something with fashion from their country, something art related from their country. You get the gist. Maybe shining a light on it to the world as you have. Maybe by instilling it in their children like you are. What do you have to say to that little girl? Trust yourself. Don't listen to all the negative voices. You're the best. Thank you. So are you. This was fun. I'm so glad we got to talk. I mean, I'm like excited for your third book. I don't know what it is or when it is, or if you even know, but I'm excited for it. And I'm excited to dig in further. I mean, I started reading stories in Palestinian table and I had a friend over yesterday who um, is in the food world and she was reading it like the whole time she was here. I'm like, all right, you know, talk to me now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) No, but I'm excited to dig more into it and actually cook from it and check out Arabesque table. Well, you have my number. So if there's any recipe that doesn't make sense, if there's a mistake or you need help, just text be like, this doesn't, I'm always nervous when people are making my recipes. I'm like, do they work? (laughs) Thank you for everything. Your time. Thank you for, I mean, you opened my eyes to your voice and what you speak about and the food and your history. It's just, it's eye opening to me and I'm excited to share it by me talking about it, but also cooking, cooking that food too. So Thanks, um, it's incredible. This was fun again, yeah. very much. 
therapeutic, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Have a good day. You too, Kevin. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Reem Cassis. Find more on her at reemcassis.com. That's R-E-E-M-K-A-S-S-I-S. To learn more about the Museum of the Palestinian People, go to mpp-dc.org. And if you'd like to check out some of the articles Reem has written covering Palestinians in the community, you can go to reemcassis.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media is by Sarah McClellan Me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, presented by Ford's Gin. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.